Okay. <laughs> well, I'd like to begin with a quote from Arlene Goldbard. Uh, she's a writer and a consultant. As she focuses on the intersection between uh, culture, politics, and spirituality. This is what Arlene says. In a world of in a world morphing at light speed into something that none of us can foretell, fear and loss can be paralyzing. Creativity is the antidote. It is both our greatest challenge and our greatest need. So there's a voice for the value of art, the value of making art, which I'm sure we all agree with, given that we're here and that's what we're doing here. So let's take a look at this endeavor, this, this creative endeavor, the endeavor of making something through colors, through words, through, through um, shapes, through movement. And I particularly want to address the obstacles that hang us up and prevent us from doing the creative work that we want to do. Um, you know, here at Spirit Rock, at this retreat, we have actually the perfect setting. You know, we have the time, we have the quiet, we have the stimulation. We hope Barbara and I provide that. <laughs> and we have the encouragement, not only of Barbara and, and me, but um, to other people too, to do, to do this. So this, this, is, this is what you have here, which you do not have at home. And so, <clears throat> you know, often at home, we, we sit down to do something, we stand up to do it, we go out in the garden to do it, whatever it is, wherever we do our art, wherever we do our creative work, and somehow it doesn't happen. We can't do it. And, you know, generally we come up with some reasons not to do it. So, you know, we go, we go there, we're full of the urgency to express something. We have that essential conviction, which I know we all have, that somewhere inside there's something that, um, that can be of use to ourselves and other people and beautiful and uh, a, a sparkling contribution to the world. And that's why we go in and, and start to do it. This is what we have in us, but pretty soon maybe it gets uh, a little hard. How, how, to, how to begin, how to start, how to find the right words, how to get the right brush stroke that will start us in the right direction. It's pretty uncomfortable. And you know, um, maybe I'm sitting there trying to do this and then I think, oops, uh, you know, I, I need to call the library about that book that's overdue. Or, gee, did I wash the breakfast dishes? I better take care of that. Or, you know, this would be the perfect time to repair that lamp that I broke last year. And, uh, um, you know, fueled by these, these excuses, I put down the paintbrush, I closed the computer, and, and I stop what I'm doing. So I know none of you do that. I'm speaking only for myself. <laughs> but why is it that we stop so quickly? Why is it that we uh, abandon our projects, and then we give up on ourselves and we let that beautiful inspiration drift away instead of harnessing it to make something in the world. Well, not, none of this is a secret. It's all our old uh, conditioned behaviors, all the ways we've um, been taught not to believe in ourselves, 
not to have the, you know, the self-esteem and the confidence to do these things. And where do, the, where are these, do these voices come from that stop us? Of course, it may have been mom and dad. In the family, I at least, in my family, we learned to suppress our feelings. We learned uh, not only to not express what we thought or felt about an experience, but to um, forget about it. You got along better if you forgot about it. So then what happens when you sit down and want to touch into that vibrant, alive part of yourself and you can't do it? So there, there are reasons. Another reason is, as grown-ups, um, we take a look at the world and we say, gee, look at all those, we go to a library and we look, oh, thousands of books already written. <laughs> In a bookstore, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and every book you could possibly think of has already been written by somebody better than me, so why would I even try? You go to a museum and you look at all the paintings and the drawings and the sculptures and you say, does the world need my pathetic little piece of expression? So you stop and you give up and you go to something else. And you know, there are parallels with our meditation practice where we also can be self-defeating. There was a a wonderful teacher named Ayakima, who um, was an internationally known nun, a Buddhist nun and meditation teacher. And she pointed out that meditation is difficult and that to keep up our spirits and our energy, we need to start by fully appreciating ourselves. And we who sat with her, she would encourage us at the beginning of every meditation session to call up the things in ourselves that we most appreciate and most like. The, the best kinds of things we do, the, 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 our, our greatest um, uh, thoughts and feelings, and, and our best selves, and bring that to the meditation cushion, which gives you tremendous energy. And then you can go past that, uh, those disparaging voices that say you can't do it. I'm not having a good meditation. This is crummy. I'm going to stop. There's no point in pursuing it. So we can do something similar, I think, in our writing and our painting, maybe at the beginning, to really call up for ourselves the, the, the things we have very skillfully done, the things we've made, the drawings the, that really vibrated with life, the sentences that shone. Um, you know, if we can become aware and vigilant enough, then we can stop those voices that threaten to rise up. And that's a kind of freedom, isn't it? Just to, just to do the thing, just to go ahead and do it. Because in that freedom, we can make the choice to follow our original inspiration. When we knew we had it in us, we knew we had something to say. We knew we could do it, or we didn't know we could do it, but we went ahead and did it anyway. So we don't need to succumb to these voices. There's a suggestion that I want to make, which I actually use sometimes when I'm going to write something that's very scary. It's asking me to look at things or confront things in myself or to try something new, and it feels very unsafe in my little room. Um, I imagine a friend of mine, one of my best friends, it doesn't matter, well, how many do you have? Maybe one, one person. And I... I put her or him across from me, 
and then I write to, to that person. It's, I've created a safe space for myself. He or she watches me do it, encourages me, likes what I produce, and there it is. So that's one way to get past that initial fear and get started. Getting started is pretty important because once you get started, you can roll along sometimes. But also to remember that this painting that you're doing, uh, this piece of writing, that is the expression that only you can accomplish. And it's going to carry your unique vision. And if you don't do it, it will never be done. And I think that's reason enough, actually, to, to make these things that we do. So maybe sometimes we go ahead and we do it, but then after we get done, we look at it and we say, oh, this is horrible. This is crap. You know, this is worthless. You know all those phrases. You've said them to yourself. Um, so I'm, I, I'm going to Martha Graham, <laughs> who is the great dancer and choreographer, who said about this, it is not your business to determine how good it is or how valuable it is or how it compares with other expressions. So you don't have to be the critic as well as the, the artist. It is your business to keep it yours clearly and directly to keep the channel open. And I think in our practice we might say also it's our business to cultivate awareness clearly and directly and keep that channel open to the deepest part of ourselves. I have a friend um, who is a dancer and a taiko drummer. Her name is P.J. Hirabayashi. And she gives an example of how art itself can counter those critical and denigrating and humiliating voices. And P.J. is Japanese-American, and she grew up in a community where she was the only child of Asian origin. Uh, so she'd been a happy little girl before she went to school, even kindergarten. But in kindergarten, uh, this other kids made fun of her. They said she had a flat nose. They refused to let her play with them. And PJ became a very unhappy little girl. So her mother, seeing this, enrolled her in a dance class because she knew how athletic and active she was, and she thought it might be helpful. And it, of course, became the best thing in PJ's life, and nobody in the class was looking at anybody's origin or, or how, how different they looked. But here's what she says about her experience as a child doing that. When I danced and performed, I felt, this is who I really am. So not that pariah in the, in the schoolyard, but this. This is who I really am. So Doing art can save us, really. It can protect us and save us sometimes. So sometimes when we were um, children, rather than being encouraged to, to express ourselves fully and freely, we were stopped in our tracks. So, you know, the teacher gave us maybe a little Thanksgiving turkey to draw, and when we drew outside or to color, and when we colored outside the lines, she told us it wasn't good, and we uh, were stopped in our tracks once again. Um, <clears throat> so we have these false teachers that we listen to, 
and they, they get us to the point sometimes that we even say to her, ourselves, I don't have the talent to paint or to write, so I might as well not even try. I don't know if you've ever said that to yourself. I certainly have. I used to write and write and write, and then look at it and say it's all terrible, and I would build a bonfire in the backyard of wherever I was living and take it all out and throw it in the bonfire and stand there mournfully while it burned. <laughs> but I don't do that anymore. <laughs> I keep every. I would say better to keep everything. You know, you might be able to use it later. So in our Buddhist practice, you know, we turn toward difficulty. Uh, we turn toward the pain and explore it. So in art, if we're tortured by these negative messages, it can be useful as an exercise to just stop everything and address them. So for instance, you can take your being tormented by these voices who are telling you you can't do it. You're not smart enough or good enough or talented enough. And um, so you take out a notebook or you open, you open a computer file and you make a heading, why I can't write or why I can't paint. And then you write down all the reasons why you are not capable of performing this task. You, you have express your doubts about your ability, your talent, your intelligence, your perseverance, your capacities. You write it all down and then you can see, we hope, that these are only concepts. These are only ideas about yourself. They really don't have any concrete reality beyond your own belief in them. And you may even begin to find them a bit funny. I mean, they're kind of extreme. We just kind of go over the top with this sort of thing. And you may end up by wondering where you picked up such weird ideas. So conversely, you can, you can turn the page and write why I can paint. And then you can list all your accomplishments in the world and in, in art itself, in your kindergarten class. Uh, in middle school when you, did, when you did a mural, when you wrote something wonderful, when you, if you've been published, you can go look at your piece in a magazine and read your name under it and look at those satisfying blocks of type and know that you can surely do it again. And if you've, uh, your paintings are hung on somebody's wall, even your own wall, you can look at them and appreciate them. Then perhaps those voices may go away, may be stilled. But you also might look at all this and say, just as we did with the other one, with the negative voices, these are just ideas about myself. These two are just ideas about myself with no reality other than what I give them. So it may help some in getting past these things to learn by other people's process. Uh, there are some models out there, and I know in my life, I've, at certain points, I've wanted to write like somebody else. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that can, be, uh, that can be very helpful. If you choose somebody who's quite wonderful, maybe you'll, maybe you'll model yourself in a good way, and then you go past that model, and you begin to do what it is you're doing. <clears throat> but we, we have a rather odd model <clears throat> in popular culture. You know, 
the the artist is or the, the writer is sitting in his ghetto in his his garret not his ghetto his garret and and he's struggling and he's throwing things away and he's making sketches and they don't work and he tosses them and this goes on and on and on and then bam inspiration hits and he pulls it together and the next day fame arrives the thing is finished the novel is done the play is written the painting is done and he's emerged into the world sort of Judy Garland and type <laughs> model but for most of the artists that I know um, that's not how it happens and most of the writers too and certainly for me it's not how it happens and it tends to be uh, a lot more of what I would call gathering that precedes doing the piece itself and you know artists make a lot of sketches they try study after study they before beginning a larger work and writers we, we're gathering our thoughts and we're gathering information and perceptions and alternate views and shifts in perspective and all that's piling up and this is a period of letting the project gel inside you before you before you start to to put it on the page and that can be two days it can be you know I'm, I'm urging my writers to be patient with themselves during this week and allow things to gather and allow things to to uh, come into perspective for them not to rush towards something. Um, the first book I did <clears throat> about Kuan Yin, which is called Discovering Kuan Yin, took just two and a half months to write. But actually, it took 10 years to write. <laughs> because in the preceding 10 years, when I was doing other things, uh, and I was writing two other books, I, I was gathering material about Kuan Yin, I was meditating on her, I was having experiences with her, I was looking at images of her, I was, I was gathering all this material which I was holding on to while doing other things, living life and doing other writing projects. <clears throat> and I wrote, I wrote two proposals, the first one was rejected out of hand, trying to get a publisher to publish it, and the second one was out there somewhere floating around. Uh, so it's, I, I just have to say persistence is, persistence is a pretty important uh, quality in us. And so on the day that the publisher called up and said, if you're willing to do this book, if you will do this book for us in two and a half months, a small book, I must say, we will give you a contract. Because of that 10 years of preceding work, I could say yes. And I not only could say but yes, but I could do it. So you begin to keep a sketchbook or a notebook or a computer file or a file folder or a portfolio. And whatever interests you and goes toward what you, what you want to create, you, you do a sketch of it. You do a, a paragraph or a line or write down an image and, and you put it in that, in that folder. And then one day, you know what the first brushstroke brush is going to be. You know what the first paragraph is going to be and what perspective you're going to take on this material. So here, here's another um, example from someone. There's a, a woman named Deborah Lasseur. I don't know if anyone here remembers Maridel Lasseur. She was a, a literary figure from the 30s who was at one point rather well known. This is her daughter. Uh, who is 
who's been uh, uh, a potter for 60 years. She's been working in clay for 60 years. She's about 86 now. She still gets up every morning. She goes out to her studio and she makes pots and she makes sculptures. And there are two ways she works, very different from each other. And the first one is the, the gathering one I was talking about. She talked about when she, in the 60s, she met a man who talked to her about goddesses and she got really interested and she began to research goddesses and look at images of them. And, and one day when she was making a big pot, she was making a very large pot in the studio, she realized she could, on the pot itself, she could create a sculpture. And so she's created a sculpture of a woman with large breasts and belly, which is the way the ancient goddesses were always built. And she realized she had made a goddess and then she began to make goddesses to bring back that, um, you know, to remind us of these ancient figures. So that's one way she worked. There was a kind of a rich mulch out of which things emerged. But there's another way that she still does, which she goes out to her studio and she sits down and she has nothing in her mind. And she picks up a big ball of clay or a little one, a little one, let's say, and she holds it in her hand. And then she sits there and allows herself to have nothing in her mind. And, um, you know, it's just empty, nothing going on, no ideas, no images, nothing. And she just sits there. But she can feel the clay in her hand. And then at some point, an image comes that she could never have cooked up herself. And, and she, she was talking about, in one instance, so she made a little figure about this big, and it was sort of halfway between a human and an animal. When you look at it, you're not sure what it is. And then she was moved to make another figure, and pretty soon her table was, there was a whole group of images of, of creatures standing looking at her like, well. <laughs> and I think she painted them and all. And then one morning she came out to her studio and um, she realized, oh, these are homeless people. And being Deborah, her response to that concept was to sit down and create a little house. She made a beautiful little house for the first figure, which she painted and decorated. And so she had a house for that one. And then Oh, there were these other ones. So she made a house for the next one and a house for the next one. This went on and became this giant art project, which now is like large sand trays with whole villages of, of images and all that. <laughs> so this is an example, you know, of being really free in one's creativity, just allowing whatever comes. And she, she can do it maybe because she's been doing it for so long that she trusts herself in that. She trusts that if I sit here long enough with this clay, something's going to happen. But she talks about our difficulties when, when we're trying to do it, and we're not, we're not she. The learning process at the beginning, she says, is a clumsy, self-conscious thing. It's like learning to ride a bike. First, it's just figuring out how to pedal and how to stay upright while you're pedaling. And then it's how to move forward. And all this we need to learn and we fall down a lot. And then it's, look, ma, no hands. She says that Picasso was a great influence on her because, quote, he shows you how to be brave. So he shows you how to trust yourself implicitly 
and just go ahead where you've never been before. And so I hope all of us are making that invitation to everybody here to do that in this, in this setting which is as safe as we can make it. But, you know, this is what we do in meditation, isn't it? I mean, and what we do in life, really. I mean, the same way we learn and get better at it in other ways, we don't. I was saying this morning to the writers that <clears throat> I've been sitting for 30 years and you'd think I'd know how to do it and it would be totally predictable. But every time I sit down, something different happens. And, and so I have no idea. Same in life, pretty much. And with writing, which I've also been doing that long, uh, I often don't know if I can accomplish something. I don't know if I can do it. And I have to find my way every time as if it's new. And the only difference is, and this is, this is what is true of Deborah, the only difference is now I've had enough experience in going ahead and in completing things that I, that I know I can do it. And, you know, I can trust that if I've given it what it's asking of me, and, you know, part, that's partly, and I know Barbara knows about this, where the thing is started and then it's not you anymore. It's what does it want from you? What does the piece want from you? Whether it's a painting or, or a piece of writing. But anyway, because of having this much experience, I, I know it will turn out well, but then sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> sometimes it's a complete uh, failure and, and down the drain. I take it out in the back. No, I don't take it out in the backyard. I should, actually. <laughs> so, you know, it's being willing to be brave. It's being willing to jump into the fray in art, in life, in Buddhist meditation. And part of this, I think, also is being kind to ourselves and honoring our process. Only you, only you can know how you need to work. Only you can do that. Nobody can tell you how to do it. But again, you can sometimes learn from people. When I was a young writer, I had the very great privilege of being allowed to go to the McDowell Colony in New Hampshire, which is an artist colony for painters and writers and composers and musicians. And so I thought, boy, I, I really have to make this time count. They give you a month to be there, and I thought, I'm going to use every minute of this month. They give you a little cottage out in the woods and wonderful food and quiet, quiet. So the first week, I just worked feverish, feverishly. <laughs> I produced 50 pages of the beginning of a novel, 50 pages. And on, then on Monday, I took off Sunday. I took a walk. I did other things. I sat down on Monday, I, Monday and I read it, and my heart sank. It was so bad that, that only about um, 10 pages of it were usable, I thought as material to even work on. So that evening at dinner, uh, I was sitting with, with these people who were uh, somewhat older than I, a lot older, and, um, you know, a painter and a couple of writers and a sculptor and all that. And somebody asked me how my day had been. And usually I was too scared to tell them what I was up to, or, and I would just say, oh, it's fine. But I was so desolate at that point that I told them, what had happened. And <clears throat> they all just looked at me like, with great interest, like, oh, hmm. And then a painter from New York spoke up, and she said, but you're so fortunate. That's a great ratio. 
if one out of five of my drawings turns out well, I count myself lucky. And, you know, I was really stunned. It was like, whoa. And everyone else at the table was going, mm-hmm, right. So, you know, the message was clear. You've got to be willing to do it a lot. You have to be willing to fail. You have to um, uh, be patient. Be patient with your efforts. Get up, try again. There's that theater piece, Naomi Newman, where she, she does the whole thing of fall down, get up, fall down, get up, fall down, get up. That's kind of what we do. <laughs> and hopefully we learn from our failures. We learn from our false starts and our wrong directions. And we also learn to trust the store of ideas that is always here in us. And just in daily living, we're accumulating much more material to work with. It's never going to run out as long as we are alive. And then over time, I think also, and somebody mentioned this last night, um, we find that the process of making art can be a process of healing. And it, I think it gives, a, it gives us a way to enter into our experiences of our life and transform them, uh, or at least transform our relationship to them. And, you know, sometimes if we are actively suffering, making art can save our lives. Uh, <clears throat> I know I've talked before about my own experience uh, in writing my book about cancer called Hidden Spring. In 1995, I was diagnosed with third-stage colon cancer. <clears throat> and there followed major surgery and 26 weeks of chemotherapy and a whole year of uh, the worst year of my life. And uh, obviously I survived it. <laughs> but one of the things I did at the beginning, I made a decision at the beginning I'd been doing Buddhist practice for quite a while then, and I said, okay, I'm going to see if my Buddhist practice can help me meet this emergency. Can it do that? <clears throat> so then four years after the event, when I found I had survived, maybe I should have waited five, right? That's the, <laughs> that's the classical number of years. Um, I decided I, it was time to write a book about that because other people might be interested in the, the bringing together of, of serious illness and Buddhist practice. And I, I did have to, I had to wait four years before I could approach it. And it's worth mentioning that there are lots of experiences in our lives which we can't deal with now. They just have to wait until we're ready. And, uh, you know, and we have, that's why we have to be patient with ourselves and pay attention. But I certainly did not want to go back into that year of suffering, but I knew that I would have to if I was going to do a book about it, and I, I felt that the book might be useful. So, so I did that. It was very difficult. And, but at the end of it, um, I found that it, that it was a healing that somehow I had redeemed that experience. I had allow my, allowed myself to enter fully into it, once again, with compassion, with awareness, with patience for myself and, and other, the other people who were involved with me in that. So art can be a healing. And in this respect, I want to reference the work of a painter whose name is Ruth Resch. And she wrote a piece for Persimmon Tree. Persimmon Tree is an online magazine of the arts that I was working with for a while. 
And Ruth had, had started out as a brilliant young scholar and academic, and she had this big career ahead of her, so she thought. And one day she was coming back from some conference where she'd given a paper, and she was pretty filled with herself, I'm terrific. And she was walking through the airport, and she had a major, major stroke, and everything changed. Uh, so after um, brain surgery and many months of treatment, here is this person who had been so articulate who could barely speak, who could speak only with great difficulty. Um, and was, her brain was so fragile that she could tolerate very little input. So um, she began to paint because she went to a speech pathologist and he told her to take some art classes. So she thought, oh, okay, what have I got to lose? And she immediately took to it. And what she said is that she found a kind of mental rest in making art that she couldn't find anywhere else. There was a lot of anxiety going on in her brain, but when she did art, she, her mind could rest. And here's what she says. <clears throat> I paint from the terrible damage to my brain. The intensity of fatigue flowing through arms and hands becomes passion on the paper. I paint into the joy of being alive into the wild urgency to speak. Death slammed my brain and thrust me into life. <clears throat> I have crossed a border. I have become a painter. I am seeing life in fewer words, and I feel what I see. So she had crossed over from this predominantly verbal, uh, very language-oriented way of being in the world into a visceral and kinesthetic world, and it was art that brought her there. But uh, many years after the stroke, she took a, a turn for the worse. Her, her, her speaking got even, even worse. And she said her mind felt paralyzed. And that was when she really lost heart. She thought, is this a life? Do I want to live this way? But she had a young painting buddy. <laughs> Here's, let's hear it for buddies. Who came over to the studio one day and said to her, make self-portraits. And she didn't know what else to do? So she thought, okay, I'll make self-portraits. So began, she began to look in the mirror and to draw what she saw. And here's what she says. I made a whole series of Conte crayon drawings from the first little crude sketches. Faraway eyes, one looking straight out at the world and the other to some inner place or to inner spheres. I saw a haggard face in my mirror I make hard lines around the eyes and mouth. The jaw is square and flabby. I want the drawings to be ugly. I want them to be harsh and messy. They show what I feel. But instead, they are delicate and beautiful in their hard truth. My life is a shambles once again, but now I have this virtuoso experience. I know well the elements of rehabilitation. Challenge just enough, rest enough, and ensure pleasure in my life. To make a new life, I will change everything once again. If you want to see some of these drawings and paintings and read this piece, it's, the magazine is persimmentry.org. And I can give you her name later if you're interested. So she's, she's telling us that healing's available to us 
in doing art. And I, I think it can bring us back to our essential wholeness and to our essential brokenness. Somehow are the same thing. So going back to the obstacles, <laughs> and I continually ask that question, why is it that we let these things stop us? Why is it that we, we put up these artificial things and then we stop? And you know, I, I, the standard that I have for the ideal state in which to begin a creative work comes from childhood, from my childhood, maybe it isn't like your childhood. But I was sitting outside in the dirt, I lived in Ohio, <clears throat> Sitting outside, it rained a lot, and it probably rained that day, so it was kind of muddy out there. And I'm sitting there playing in the dirt, maybe with other kids, and I decide I want to make a little building. So I mess, get some mud together, and I put it into a, a building, or I want to make a mountain, I make a mountain, or I want to make a, build a truck out of dirt, or whatever it is. I'm, I go ahead and I do it, and not once do I worry what someone else will think about this. Somehow that thought never comes to me. I just went joyfully ahead and I did it. I did it because I was so enthralled and excited by the doing. And isn't that it? Isn't that where the great pleasure is in what we do? It's that pleasure in the doing. So how to achieve that unfettered condition again? Um, how to deal with uh, that internal critic, which we know so well, whoever it might be. Now, I used to think that the way to do it, <clears throat> so it's somebody, you see that person in front of you, and they're saying, well, you obviously, oh, that paragraph is, oh, that, oh, no, oh, that won't do. Oh, that's terrible. Oh, you can't, give it up, kid. You're, it's not for you, and so forth. All these messages. And I thought the thing to do maybe was to uh, go get some rope and tie him up or her up and lay them out on the floor, get some duct tape, put it over the mouth, and um, drag them out into the hallway, leave him out there, and shut the door. Uh, <clears throat> but my partner was saying to me, you know, that's kind of violent, you know? <laughs> and, you know, maybe I have come to a more moderate view, and she was suggesting that <laughs> you could make friends with the internal critic. <clears throat> I would, you know, I'm willing to uh, entertain that idea. I mean, after all, this internal critic is part of you, isn't it? It's part of myself <clears throat> that's saying this. So let's say I, I imagine the critic sitting in front of me, and I see that actually he or she has some good critical capacities. So I appreciate him or her for that. I know you're, you're very good at critiquing whatever. And uh, I appreciate your skills in that. And then you say, but let's make a deal. I, uh, you go away while I do this first draft. Just go outside while I do the first draft. And then later if I'm going to do more and I need a critique, I'll call you back in and you can give your opinion. So, I don't know, I, uh, maybe, that's, then it becomes not a fight, but a negotiation. But Anna reminded me, of course, that there are some critics that just keep creeping in. I mean, they're very sneaky, and they pop up again here and there, and, and you might have to scream at them. So I would recommend that, too. <laughs> we, do, we do anything that's necessary. <laughs> 
We want to keep the, the, the voice of the critic away from that rough draft. And it's called a rough draft because it's really, really rough. It's like all lumpy and there's too much here and there's not enough there and oh, this wasn't what I meant to say and this and that. So um, it's ragged, it's off kilter. And it's all possibility. And it's all possibility like a teeny baby. It's all possibility. So you don't want to interfere with that in any way. So you have to keep that precious. Don't invite anybody in to look at it, whether it's an internal critic or an external critic. Later, after you work on it, after the baby grows up a little bit, you know, you can, you can show it to people <laughs> and all that. But not when it's, because so many things get stopped in their tracks. Because they're shown, they're shown to people too soon. Which is why uh, Barbara has you not make comment on, on each other's paintings. Now, later you might want to, maybe you've done some work on it and now you want to take it out and show it to somebody in the world. But you have to be careful who you show it to. And whoever you show it to, you've got to consider the source. Oh, this person has a hang-up about that, or this person is prejudiced about that. And so then the response comes from that instead of something you can use. And, you don't, and I would suggest not to react right away. <clears throat> just, just take it in. Just take it in, you know, somebody's talking to me about something and I, I make notes, but I don't look at them now, you know, and tomorrow I take out the notebook and I look at the notes. When that person isn't there, when there's no emotional thing going on in the room, and I read, what's, I read the critique and, I, uh, and the suggestions that are made, and there's only one question that I ask, with which is, <clears throat> uh, will this be helpful? Is this helpful? Is this useful and helpful? And if it is, then I, I take those criticisms and I make the changes. And if it isn't, then I toss it. So we've said that our art making takes courage. And it takes patience. <clears throat> and I think it takes a kind of loyalty to ourselves. And, you know, standing up for and hanging in for the best in ourselves, the best capacities. Um, I've worked with a lot of people. I work as a writing consultant and, and a teacher. I've worked with a lot of people and seen these wonderful beginnings just peter out. And it, it, that always makes me sad. It makes me sad because, for two reasons. First, that I don't get to read what the person has written. And secondly, uh, because they've somehow copped out on themselves. They haven't honored the best in themselves. So I would, I would ask us all to um, think deeply about how we can remain loyal to ourselves in, in making the things we make and doing the things we do. So I just want to end with um, one of the lessons from children. <laughs> and, you know, it's a cliche, but probably... Pablo Picasso said, every child is an artist. The problem is how to remain an artist once he or she grows up. And I would say also, or how to return to being an artist here now in our grown-up bodies, because so many of us, we, we were artists when we were children. How to return into that? How, how to, during this week, can we return into that? Um, <clears throat> 
Last month I was invited to a film about Palestinian children. And believe me, I did not want to go. Given what's going on in the Middle East, I thought, oh, you know, this is going to be a litany of suffering. It's going to be really hard to watch. I do not want to watch this. And, but I got talked into it that they said, no, no, come. You've got to come. So I went to the film, <clears throat> which is called um, Flying Papers. And I was hugely, hugely surprised because uh, it is about children making kites. They're making kites. There's this little bunch of kids. You know, in the neighborhood, there's a bunch of kids anywhere in the world. So here they are in the West Bank, and they're, or Gaza, I don't know which, and, and um, they're making kites. And they're, they're, you know, they have newspapers that they're cutting and little pieces of wood that they're straightening and they're making the glue out of flour and water. And they have some paints. And so they make a kite and then they decorate it and each child decorates it differently and, and they're competitive and they're pushing each other and laughing and they're having a great time. And they're doing it with a purpose which is that they want to break the Guinness Book of, the Guinness Book of World Records for the number of kites that, can be fly that have been flying at the same time. And the record last time, the last one was 3,000 kites. So these children are determined that they, and many other children in their area, w would break the record this time. Uh, you know, so the, so the devastation in their land, the conflict, that was hardly mentioned. But of course, in the background of the film, you see bombed out buildings, you see what used to be a house, which isn't a house anymore. And one of the children uh, showed <clears throat> a missile head and a tank mortar that had arrived in his village. He described this as a missile head. It, it arrived in the village, and here it is. Um, you know, so they live in a war zone, yet the whole feel of the movie is the aliveness of the children's creativity, their enthusiasm, their joy, their joking, their laughing, their tending over their tending to their work, they're helping each other. That's the whole feel of the movie. So, you know, it's what I quoted Arlene Goldbart at the beginning, who said, in a world morphing at light speed into something that none of us can foretell, fear and loss can be paralyzing. And certainly these children are in an environment in which fear and loss could paralyze them. And yet, and Arlene says, the creativity is the antidote. It's both our greatest challenge and our greatest need. So in this film, they have, the final scene is an overhead. It went up in an airplane. <laughs> And they're shooting, it's down on the beach, and there are 7,000 kites flying, like a flock of beautiful birds with little children running under them, uh, whole and happy, and it's, it's happening. And they, so they broke, they broke the record. Success. <laughs> so, you know, that night I was reminded by art, the, both the art of the film itself and the art of the children's kite making, that this need that we have to find our creative ex uh, inspiration and express it, it's really a way to live wholly. It's a way to be totally in our life. And in the midst of all the challenges and sometimes chaos that we experience too. So I invite you to venture forth and cut and glue and paint your kite 
and watch it rise up to flutter in dangerous skies and express the essence of who you are. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.